Welcome, everyone. Good morning. Uh, also, uh, been a good reminder of the value of prayers of thankfulness and of thanksgiving. And as you probably know, it's Thanksgiving weekend, and so we're going to begin with a prayer of thanksgiving. Uh, what you might not realize is that uh, when it comes to Canadian Thanksgiving, it, it really was established as a day to honor the Lord. Uh, uh, here's what I found uh, through the miracle of Wikipedia. Um, Governor General Vincent Massey on January, uh, January 31st, 1957, so that's when it was officially started, uh, he issued the following proclamation. He said, a day of general thanksgiving to Almighty God for the bountiful harvest with which Canada has been blessed is to be observed on the second Monday in October. And here we are, uh, second Monday of October almost, uh, a long weekend, sure, but also an opportunity to give thanks. And so uh, we are going to, uh, if you would, uh, join with me in prayer. And uh, I'm going to read from uh, Psalm 147, verses 7 to 11, and, uh, and then pray into this. Here's what it says there. It says, sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares the rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Lord God, I am thankful. Lord, for all that you've done, and I pray, Lord, that you would take pleasure in us gathering here. Uh, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be ones that, that fear you, that acknowledge your greatness and your strength, and also, Lord, your uh, provision, your grace uh, for our country and for our lives. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would continue to bless Canada. I pray, Lord, for the election coming up, Lord, that you would bless those that are ultimately elected into power with wisdom. Lord, that they would seek your ways, and God, that we as a nation would uh, continue to return to you. Uh, Lord, that we would hope in you most of all. I pray, Lord, for the churches across our nation that today are uh, praying prayers of thankfulness, Lord. We just pray it would be very honoring to you, pleasing to you. And Lord, I pray that we would be built up as we remember and are thankful for all that you've done. Help us again now, Lord, as we turn to your word to be instructed, uh, to be helped. And Lord, I pray that the hope that we have uh, would be rooted in all that you've done for us in Christ and in the revealing of yourself through your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we continue on in the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, if you're new here with us, we've been working through uh, 1 Timothy. Uh, we're in chapter 1 still. We're almost at the end. Uh, today we are in verses 18 to 20. And uh, I'd like to begin this morning with a, a short story uh, from church history this is a story from a pastor from the 1500s. His name is Hugh Latimer. Uh, there's a kind of picture of him up there. Now, Hugh Latimer uh, lived in the time of the Reformation, and uh, he was uh, a very fiery preacher. Uh, he was someone who did not shrink back from declaring the word and the way that it was revealed in the Bible, and he had an opportunity to go and preach before King Henry VIII, who, as you might know, was a fairly you know, fiery king, right? He was the guy who killed four of his wives. Uh, and so not surprisingly, uh, Hugh Latimer offended the king. Something he said, the way he said it, offended the king. And after he was finished preaching, uh, some of the king's people came to Hugh Latimer and said, listen, uh, th the king was offended by what you had said, but he is going to be gracious. Uh, he is inviting you back next Sunday to come and preach again. You can begin with a word of apology, and then you can correct you know, what was an error. That would be great. 
So Hugh Latimer accepted the invitation, and uh, in his week as he was deliberating, he actually journaled a bit about kind of his mindset, what he was thinking, and we have the record of what he said. So I'm going to read to you. You'll see it up there. Here's what he said. Uh, He's the kind of guy who speaks about himself in the third person, okay, which is kind of cool. So here's what he said. (laughs) Hugh Latimer, do you know before whom you are this day to speak? To the high and mighty monarch, the king most excellent, who can take away your life if you offend. Therefore, take heed that you speak not a word that may displease. And then he thinks a little bit more. He writes this. But then, consider well, Hugh, do you not know from whence you have come, upon whose message you are sent, even by the great and mighty God, who is all present, and who beholds all your ways, and who is able to cast your soul into hell? Therefore, take care that you deliver your message faithfully. So what do you think he did on that next Sunday? He preached the exact same sermon that he preached the Sunday before, and he preached with even more vigor. Imagine the boldness to come up and say to King Henry VIII, I don't think you heard me last Sunday. Let me tell you exactly the same thing. See, that is a boldness that we actually see the Apostle Paul exhorting young Timothy to in our passage today. He wants for him to capture this sense of real just fearlessness to proclaim the truth of God's word and to fight for it even if there might be some opposition, especially sometimes because there's some opposition. Some of the wording we have in our passage today is that Paul is telling Timothy to wage the good warfare. And this is not a long passage, just three verses we're going to look at, but it's full of impact and, uh, and leading for us as a church, you know, how it is that we should really fight for the faith. So I'm going to read the three verses and then we'll dig into what God has for us this morning. This begins in verse 18. Uh, this is God's word to us, and remember, this is, this is Paul writing to Timothy. So he says this, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. We're going to stop there. So obviously, some very kind of fiery language. Uh, The way we're going to work through this morning, uh, I'm going to give you one sort of key idea. And to show you where that idea comes from, we're just going to look back at verse 18, where uh, Paul says, this charge, so this, this thing I'm exhorting you to, I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies that were previously made about you. Uh, there's a few other places in scripture where when, when Timothy was kind of um, officially entered into the ministry, there's people laid hands on him, prayed for him, prophesied over him. And here Paul's saying, this is, this is part of that, part of fulfillment of that. But really the focus is the end part of that verse where he says, by them you may wage the good warfare. Now that language may seem a bit strange, this military language, but he uses it um, more than once. In fact, at the end of the letter, he, he, in closing, says this to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith, in 1 Timothy 6.12. So really, you can see the entire letter of 1 Timothy as kind of a call to arms for Timothy personally. Look, there's something you need to do. You need to, to fight this fight. It, we know it's about false teaching in the church. We've seen that already in the letter. But also, this is a call for the church in general. This isn't just Timothy specifically, but for the church that the church is going to have to engage in these kinds of fights contending for the faith. So our key idea, we're going to build it as we go, but the beginning part of it is this, that we find in our passage. The church 
should expect to fight necessary battles. Necessary battles. Uh, to sort of unpack the text and, and sort of expand on this key idea, we're going to ask three uh, questions about this idea of having to sort of fight for the faith, wage the good warfare. What does this mean exactly? So question number one is going to be the longest, uh, and it's this. What is a necessary battle? It seems that there's clearly something necessary that Paul is calling Timothy to do. So what is a necessary battle? This is a really important question because if you've been around the church uh, for any length of time, you know that we are pretty good at fighting unnecessary battles. You know what I mean? Battles that are not that important and we get very heated about. I came across one example just to remind ourselves. This is from uh, Pastor Craig Barnes from the National Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. He tells this story. He says, last spring, the hospitality committee of our church put a little coffee cart in the narthex. The narthex is like the entryway of the church, okay, coffee cart. The next day, the head usher of 25 years quit in protest, saying this was a sacrilege to the church sanctuary. All the ushers became very upset. Since a committee had put the coffee cart there, the session had to decide on the issue. So they set up a task force that met for eight weeks to listen to the ushers and the hospitality committee. One Sunday, a bunch of ushers decided not to show up to usher because we hadn't yet brought back the head usher, so now all the elders were ticked off at the ushers. He says, in the middle of this, I'm not talking to anyone about Jesus, I'm not making hospital calls, or shepherding people through their grief, I'm trying to figure out whether we should serve coffee in the church entryway. He says, this is a fight that was not worth fighting. And points out that there are a lot of fights like this in the church that are not worth fighting. And so he, he suggests a few questions, some things to think about before we get too excited, too hot under the collar, too holier than thou. He says, ask the question, what I'm about to fight over, is this going to matter like years from now? Is it, is it that big of a thing? He says, you should ask, is this about me? Is this about uh, justifying my actions or my personal convictions or is this about the greater good for the church? Is this about biblical principles? These are good questions to ask because we know that there are a lot of petty battles that we should not get caught up in, that sadly in the church, many people have got caught up in. But it's also good questions because while there are some petty personal battles that we shouldn't fight, there are some other battles that we need to fight because they're necessary because they will have a lasting impact on the future generations of the church. So you notice in our key idea, I left an ellipses at the end. That's because I want to kind of clarify what are these necessary battles by uh, pointing out two things. So the first is this, the church should expect to fight necessary battles for truth. For truth. The battle that Paul is exhorting Timothy to, to enter into is not like a battle about the color of the church carpet. It, it's not about what kind of music they would listen to. It's not some small thing. It is about preserving the truth of the gospel in the church, which is one of the key mandates of the church. If, if you remember, uh, the, the key verse, we looked at this at the beginning, sort of for the whole letter, is uh, 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. And there, uh, Paul says, that the church of the living God is to be a pillar and buttress of the truth, that we're to hold up the truth in the world and certainly within the church. And if you look at church history, you'll see, even from kind of just a cursory glance at it, that there have been a lot of fights for the truth. All the way back in the Old Testament, when sort of the church, the people of God were being established, 
In fact, at the moment when God was giving the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai, below, the people were already sliding into falsehood. They were making an idol. They're beginning to worship this false idol. And Moses has to come down and rebuke them, correct them. This isn't right. This isn't faithful. You need to be worshiping the Lord, the Lord only. We see this all through the Old Testament, that the people of God constantly stray into falsehood, untruth, and the prophets, the leaders, God uses them to correct, to say, no, that's not right. Back here, here is the the truth. Here's the right way forward. The same thing happens in the New Testament. When Jesus comes, he is coming to actually correct the the Jewish leaders at the time. He's basically coming to say, look, you don't understand the prophecies of old. You don't understand the law correctly. And you don't understand the kingdom of God. I am the truth. I am the Messiah. And all through the early church, we see this constant refrain that you need to lay hold of the sound doctrine. Every New Testament letter has something about holding to to the good doctrine. In fact, even the book of Jude, this tiny book of Jude, has the words contend for the faith. That's what the church was always about. Even through church history, there was council after council affirming what was biblical, what accorded with the apostles' teaching. The deity of Christ, the trinity, the doctrine of salvation, fight after fight after fight, even to this very day. Now, in light of all of this, I think there's some questions that people tend to ask about the church, especially you might be new to the church. You might be thinking, man, it does seem like the church fights a lot. Sometimes people ask, like, why is that? I mean, why is it that there's so many fights about biblical truth? Can't you guys get your act together? Like, why are there so many different denominations? Why can't you just agree on the truth and just go from there? I think the right response is that that's, that's not exactly a fair question. Here, here's an illustra- illustration to help us see this. If you were to go into like an emergency room, like at a hospital, right? You came in and you gathered all the, all the doctors, the team there, and you said to them, hey, emergency room team, can't you just get everyone healthy for once? Every time I come in here, there's more and more sick people. Like, what's going on? They would look at you like you're an idiot, because you are, and they would say, well, what do you think we're trying to do? We, we are trying to bring health to the human body. The problem is that there's sickness in the human body. And so every time someone leaves, there's more sickness that develops or something, injury, and they come back and we have to heal them. That's our job. That's what we're trying to do. The church can fairly say, look, we are the agents of truth that God has brought into the world, but there is falsehood and corruption in the human heart, which means that even though the truth is proclaimed, there will be a constant veering away into all manner of heresy and untruth, and it's the church's job to to fight for the truth, to constantly point people back to the word of God. It is not a vain fight or just a repetitive fight. It is, should be an expected fight in light of the sin of the world. Now, another question that comes up and I think would rightly come up in light of just the book of 1 Timothy is, like, I thought the church was supposed to be about love. So why is there all this language about fighting and about war? Like, like what's, what's that about? And that is a, a fair question. If you're here a few weeks ago, you'll notice that uh, Paul actually first gave a charge to Timothy that was about love. Here's verse 5 in this same chapter. Paul says, The aim of our charge is love. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And then now, just a few verses later, Paul is saying, wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. And so you'd say, how do you square that circle? Is, is the church supposed to be about love? Or is it supposed to be about war? And the answer is that those are actually two sides to the same coin. 
that any fight for the truth is a loving fight. It is, is a fight for the love of the people of the world and the people of the church. So that's going to be our second word to kind of round out our key idea, that the church should expect to fight necessary battles for truth and love. And if you're wondering whether, in fact, those two things do actually go together, uh, I want to give you another illustration. I'd like to contrast for you briefly uh, two wars that were fight, uh, fought by the United States of America. Two wars. First war is the Vietnam War, largely considered to be one of the most unpopular wars, uh, mostly because the objectives and purpose of that war were not very clear. Uh, they was sort of to fight communism, but no one is exactly clear about how that was actually being accomplished, and the costs were very, very high. There was not a lot of truth in that war. And the protesters, the hippies, right, they, their response was, make love, not war. They were saying, look, you, this, there's a choice, and you're making the wrong choice. That, that saying gives the impression that it's either one or the other. But in fact, that's not true. We know it's not true because of a previous war that was fought, World War II. This largely viewed as the most noble and worthwhile war that has ever been fought. We ourselves, Canadians, fought as well. And the reason that it seemed to be worthwhile is because there was a truth in that war. There was a gravity of evil in the world in the form of the Nazis that everyone could see that if, if they were not stopped, it would mean the destruction of, of Europe and maybe the world. There was a very clear objective that we needed to stop the, those that were hell-bent, I use that word on purpose, hell-bent on destroying and killing everyone who didn't look like them, who didn't believe as they did. So the costs were still high, but the truth was there. And that meant that that was a war that was a loving war. What I mean is, if there was someone who were to say, you know what, we should just, we should just not enter in. We should just not fight. We should just allow them to, to have the territory that they've captured, just try to make peace. You would say, that's not loving. That, that's not right. We need to fight against this evil and tyranny. To not do anything wouldn't be about love. It would be cowardice. And see, the, the church is called not to cower, but to fight the good fight that is a loving fight. And, and most of the time, this comes down to a fight about proper doctrine. The truth that we see in the word that is then being taught or, or lived in the local church. So what are the battlegrounds? What are some of the necessary battles that the church has been fighting recently? Well, here's a few of them. Number one is, uh, is what is the Bible? Right? Is the Bible the inerrant and authoritative word of God or is it like a suggestion box, right? That we would look to, find some stuff that's good, and, and maybe live it, maybe not. That's, that's a battle that has direct impact on the faith and hope that people have. Who is Jesus? That's a battle that's been fought for centuries. Is, is he a, a wise sage? Is he a good teacher? Or is he the divine savior? The, the only name by which we can be saved. That's a big difference. That has huge, a huge impact on people's salvation. And what is the way of salvation? Is it by grace alone, through faith alone, or is it kind of a two-handed thing where we participate? Can we earn our way of the things that we should do and need to do? Huge impact. Huge fallout if we get this wrong. You can see some of these battles being played out in denominations all over the world. Uh, one uh, movie, actually, that captures a little bit of this, 
uh, that I think is, uh, is actually not a bad movie is called Come Sunday. It's on Netflix. Uh, it's the real-life story of Pastor Carlton Pearson from Tulsa, Oklahoma. I don't know if you've seen this. Um, it chronicles his shift into the heresy of universalism. So he's a pastor in a Pentecostal denomination, but all of a sudden gets the idea, says he hears from God that actually everyone is saved. Whether you claim the name of Jesus or not, you're saved. You're going to heaven. The movie kind of looks at the tension, looks at the difficulty, the split of the church, and does a good job of that. The one thing I think the movie doesn't do is really communicate the, the seriousness of this kind of thing. It's a serious, grievous thing for a pastor to stand up as he did in front of his church and to say, look, everyone you know, whether they actually know Jesus or not, they're saved. They're going to heaven. When a pastor says that, when a church communicates that, it puts people's eternal souls in danger because there's no impetus to go and share the gospel. There's people who hear that and think, well, I don't really need to make a decision about Jesus. It gives them a false hope that is contradicted in the New Testament. Romans 10, 9 says the truth. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, the battle that Timothy was facing and the battles that we see still in our day are necessary battles for truth and for love. And you'll notice these are primarily battle, like these are battles mostly within the church. You notice that? Here, this is not a call for Timothy to go and wage war with the world. Right? In, in Christianity, there are no infidels that we need to wage war against. There are those that are lost and our call to the world, to those who don't know Jesus, is to have compassion and grace and love, to acknowledge we were all lost, we're all sinners. It's only by the grace of God that we have peace with him. But to those within the church, those who you know, are Christians who are straying into false teaching, then we are to wage war. We are to fight. Now, we're going to talk about how we do that in a moment, but just a point of application uh, for us personally is, you know, it's really hard to fight for the truth if you don't know your Bible. Like, how are you going to know what's, what's false and what's true? Uh, a friend of uh, ours, uh, Don and I, last week um, emailed Don, and she said, um, would, could you listen to this sermon? Because I, I heard it, and man, it's just something seems, I'm not sure if it's, if it's right. Could you listen, and could you tell me what you think? Now, when she said, tell me what you think, what she didn't mean is, like, did you like it? Like, did you like the illustrations? Did you like the tone? She doesn't care whether we like it. What she wanted to know is, does it agree, like, is it, is it match up with what the Bible teaches? She, that's, that's always our call as believers. If you're a Christian here, Anytime that we hear a sermon or teaching or read a book, we should always be thinking, man, does that match up with the Bible? Because this is our authority. In fact, if you look in the New Testament, you'll see that's the way that the early church operated, the faithful ones. Even Paul himself, there's this little part in Acts where he goes to uh, Berea. And uh, as he goes there and, and preaches, the response from the people there is they received his word and then they checked scripture. So even though he's like the apostle Paul planting churches everywhere, they hear him and say, that sounds good. Let me check. That, that's what we should always do. But we can only do that if we know the word. There's an underlying call here for Timothy and for us to know the word of God, to be in the word of God, to be able to discern truth. So, question number one, what is a necessary battle? It is a battle for truth and for love. So next question, how do we fight well? How do we do this uh, with integrity? How do we do this honorably and effectively? 
Well, we see what Paul uh, says there to Timothy uh, as sort of a, a way to help him in this. At the end of verse 19, he says, wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Now, the faith part is the truth we just talked about. You have to hold fast to the faith. You need to know the truth. But he also says you have to have a good conscience. And that there means a, a conscience, a life where there is not any unconfessed sin. Okay, that's what he's calling Timothy to. Uh, in fact, Paul himself refers to his clear conscience and his good conscience a bunch of times. Uh, here's what he says to the church in Rome. He's about to teach them a very difficult teaching in Romans 9. And he begins this way in verse 1. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So he's not saying there, I'm perfect. What he's saying is, in as much as God has revealed my sin to me, I've turned from it. Like anything that the Spirit of God has brought to my eyes, brought to my mind, someone said to me, I've confessed, I've repented, I've gone the other way. My conscience is clear. What we have here to Timothy and to us is, is the recognition that if the church, if we are going to fight for truth and love, we have to be pursuing holiness. We have to be identifying areas of sin in our own lives and turning from it. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why this is important. Uh, probably the most obvious is just uh, hypocrisy. There's nothing worse than trying to fight for truth and love when you have harsh, hateful words or a bitter heart. That's no good. Everyone knows that. Everyone can see that. It undermines the whole thing that you're trying to do. But the other reason is that, you know, a bad conscience opens the door to bad doctrine. John Calvin uh, said it like this. He said, uh, a bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. And what he meant by that is wrong living leads to a twisted view of scripture because we, we tend to try to justify our actions, right? Think of, think of the person who's uh, in unrepentant uh, adultery, who's trying to grasp at Bible verses to talk about the, you know, the grace of God and, and how you know, we should forgive and, and all these things. That's not what that's talking about. Think about the people who are bitter in their heart and yet are you know, pointing to verses, talking about having to fight for the truth. Maybe some of these verses saying, well, I can't forgive because they're still wrong. And you're like, you're not, that's not what that verse is talking about. See, our wrong choices, our sinful, unrepentant lifestyle will skew the way that we see the word of God. Here's the progression that we see in scripture and, and probably around us in our own lives. A life of unrepentant sin leads to adult conscience, which leaves us unable to discern truth, which then harms our faith, undermines our faith. And, and Paul talks about all of this and he says, this is, this is a shipwreck. That's the word he uses because he gives an example of two guys who had shipwrecked their faith in this way. So this is verses uh, 19 and 20. He says, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. We'll talk about the Satan part in a minute, I promise. But uh, notice what he says about these two guys. Uh, Alexander and Hymenaeus, he gives us their names, so he's calling them out. Uh, there are a few Alexanders in the New Testament that cause trouble, we don't know if this is one of them. We just don't know. This is the, the coppersmith, these other guys. But with Hymenaeus, we do uh, know who he is and what he's done because Paul mentions him again in uh, 2 Timothy, the next letter. Uh, here's what he writes in uh, 2 Timothy 2, 16 to 18. He says, But avoid irreverent babble, 
for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. So when Paul says in our, uh, in our passage, rejecting this, this is what he means. That these two guys were, uh, didn't believe the truth, they didn't teach the truth, and they weren't living the truth. They were rejecting all of that. And it brought them to the point of destruction for them and, and for the church. See, again, what he's saying is a life of unrepentant sin leads to a dulled conscience, which leaves us unable to discern truth and, and harms our faith and the faith of those around us, those that we have influence over. So what we need to see in this passage is that it's not just a call to fight for truth and to defend the faith. It's also a warning of what happens when we don't listen to our conscience. What we should hear here is really some alarm bells going off that should cause us to, to consider, man, is, is there any unconfessed sin in my life? Is there an area of, of blindness, willing blindness, where I just haven't wanted to look, haven't wanted to deal with it? Is there something that I know I should have been dealing with? What we see here is Paul saying that's a dangerous position to be in, that it's going to undermine your own faith, it's going to skew how you come to read the word of God, and it's going to have an impact on the lives of people around you. If you're really to contend for the truth, you need to be able to walk forward with a good conscience. So question two, how do we fight well? We hold to the faith with a, with a good conscience. Third question, given that we have to fight, given that we you know, have a call to enter into these discussions, what battle strategy should the church use? What battle strategy? How should we go about it? What tactic is the best? Well, we see it here. Discipline in the hopes of restoration. That's what Paul is demonstrating. Discipline in the hopes of restoration. This is what he says at the end of verse 20. He says about these guys whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now that may seem very uh, harsh. It sort of seems on the surface like what Paul is saying is, look, these guys, I've handed them over to Satan and I hope Satan punishes them for all the trouble they've caused. That's not really what he's saying. Uh, what we see here is actually a picture of church discipline. In fact, one of the most extreme versions of church discipline where someone is actually uh, told that they have to leave the church. Uh, sometimes this is called excommunication. Now, in one sense, Alexander and Hymenaeus, they have been handed over to Satan because when you are told to leave the community of faith, you enter the world, and the world, according to Scripture, is Satan's dominion. So there is an aspect of that, but it is not meant to be punitive. It is meant to be restorative. See, Paul is doing this, he tells us, so that they may learn not to blaspheme. Remember, Paul says about himself, I was a blasphemer. That's someone who uh, um, speaks against God, dishonors God with their words. That was Paul. And yet Paul was saved. Paul was redeemed. And what we're seeing here is that that is what Paul intends. He wants for them to be restored. And, and the reality is, what he's saying is, this is sometimes what the fight for truth and love looks like. We see a number of times in his letters that there are those in unrepentant sin that he says it gets to a point where you, you need to tell them they are no longer welcome in the church. When someone is resolute in their sin, 
when they've been met with, when they've been appealed to, reasoned with, when there's been meetings and people have said, look, the way that you're living, what you're teaching, it doesn't match up here. Like, this is sin. I can show you exactly where. This isn't a, some silly incidental issue. This is a big issue. This is something we have clear teaching on in the word. When those kind of conversations happen and there's still a hardness of heart and an unwillingness to change, then it's not loving or gracious to just pretend everything's okay. And just to allow this person to continue in their life in the community of faith, teaching what they want to do and, and not address it. Philip Towner, uh, he says this. This is helpful, I think. He says, for some, it takes being cast off into the sea to realize the advantage on board the ship. Like That's the intention here. And, and the truth of the matter is we see this kind of dynamic in other places, not just in the church. Right? In the secular world, uh, we have things called interventions. Right? An intervention is, is usually when there's someone in a family's life or a friend circle's life and they are, there's something about their lifestyle that is very destructive, right? Usually drugs or alcohol or something else like that. And the people in their lives have probably tried to talk to them, had to one-on-one conversations. This person is not listening, not interested in changing. And so what do they do? They intervene. They, they have probably a surprise meeting where the person walks into a room and everyone they know is there and they all have the same message. Look, the way that you're living is going to destroy you. Your drugs, your alcohol, whatever it is, you, you have to understand that it's going to go to a place where you end up in jail or you end up in the hospital and it's affecting all of us. And so we want to help you. Here's the treatment center. Here's the things we're willing to do. But look, if you're not willing to do any of that, then it can't just be business as usual. If you're maybe living at home, the parents might say, I'm sorry, you have to move out. If, if you're a friend circle, they might say, you can't come and hang out with us anymore. And the response very often from that person is, don't you care about me? You're rejecting me? This is the way you treat me? Don't you love me? And the answer is yes. Yeah, that's why we're doing this. We love you too much to just pretend that everything's fine and just to go on as usual. This is our love for you, that you might see the gravity of the situation and that you would actually change. See, it's very similar what we see in terms of church discipline. Except the added, the added component of the church is that it's also not just for the sake of the person, but it's also to protect the church from false teaching and from the impact that that can have. So, so this is essentially what Paul is telling to Timothy. Look, Timothy, you know there's problems in the church. This is a, fa- a fight, a battle you need to enter into. Right? You need to have boldness and courage. Hold fast to the truth and a good conscience, and you go, and there are going to be people that you're going to have to perhaps ask to leave. It's a picture of church discipline. I thought it'd be helpful for us here, especially for those who call Tri-City Church home, to ask, to sort of think of some practical concerns about how this would apply to us, and specifically how this works. So that's where we're going to end our time with this. So a few questions. Uh, Number one, you might be wondering, what is the process for church discipline? Like, how does this actually work? Well, we have it laid out very clearly uh, in the book of Matthew. Jesus himself gives us the process for dealing with sin uh, amongst us, right? What do you do if there's someone in sin and you, how do you deal with that? Well, here's what he says in Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. 
But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let, it, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So you see the process there. If there's someone who sins against you, you first decide, man, is this, do I need to deal with this? Can I just overlook it? Is it a big deal? Is it a small deal? If it's something that if you'll need, you need to talk about, you go to them directly. You don't tell six people first, right? You, you go to them. You say, look, here's the offense. Here's the sin. Hopefully the person repents, there's softness of heart, there's reconciliation, praise God. But sometimes there isn't. Sometimes there's a hardness of heart. So what do you do? You go and ask someone else in the church, godly character, and you ask them to come as well for two reasons. One, because then the other person sees this is not just a personal vendetta. This other person, godly person, sees the same thing and is concerned. But the other reason is that now the second person can see how the, how the person reacts. Are they still hard-hearted? They, they say you guys are crazy, you don't know what you're talking about. Or is there a softness there? There's some discernment there. If it doesn't go well, then you would have other meetings, right? Maybe with the community group leader or, or someone else. Eventually, you would get to the church leadership. And the church leadership would have these same kinds of meetings. Look, here, here in the word, here's, here's the way you're acting. Here's what we've heard. Is this, you know, do you see this? Is there a willingness to work on it? If there's a unwillingness to change or even hear what the people are saying, then it may come to the point where the church leadership says, okay, well, then you, you're no longer welcome here for all the reasons we just talked about. That's the process. It's not a quick process. It's a slow process. It's a prayerful process. It's one that is, is filled with concern for both the church and for the other person. Now, the next question you might ask is, has this happened at Tri-City Church? Uh, my answer is not yet, uh, but it's just a matter of time, honestly. <laughs> We are a young church, and by God's grace, a healthy church at this point, but we are no different than the churches that have been around for thousands of years before us. So we can expect that there will be times where there will be people in sin, and, and you need to know, we should know, what is the process? What has God laid out? How would we deal with this? And the other practical question is, well, then who enacts church discipline? Hopefully, it's been fairly clear by this point that it's the leaders in the church, the church elders. Um, this is not a command for the church to discipline each other, right? You don't come and put each other out of the church, not the way it works. Uh, Paul and Timothy have authority over the church in Ephesus, and they're acting in that authority. The elders of the church are the ones who have authority to make these kinds of judgment calls. Now, you might ask then for us, a tri-city church, who would do this sort of thing? Well, in case you're not aware, uh, as a young church, we don't yet have elders here. We have a, a temporary sort of interim leadership team made up of the senior pastors of the three churches that planted us. Uh, so that's uh, Northview Community Church, Jeff Bucknam, Crossridge Church, Lee Francois, and Norm Funk from Westside Church. Uh, now, Norm Funk, uh, you may also know, recently stepped down, uh, is no longer part of the staff at Westside. So we recently just decided that he's going to step off our plant leadership team, just makes sense. He does still love us. He's coming to preach, I promise. Um, but those are the ones who are kind of giving leadership, you might also know that uh, we at our AGM said, you know, we're a young church, but it really seems like it would make sense for us to move towards independence, towards autonomy. Right now, we're very closely connected with Northview. A lot of our back-end infrastructure comes through Northview. We're legally, technically a ministry of Northview. That was the best way for us to start. But everyone involved, Northview elders, uh, the leadership team says, you know what, it seems like Tri-City Church makes sense for us to be autonomous. 
And so we're working towards that. And one of the first things that needs to happen is that we have local elders. So our plan is to bring some local elders, those from amongst us, uh, to be affirmed by the church membership before the summer. We see that as kind of the first step towards then uh, being autonomous, making sure financially we're sustainable, all those kinds of things. But it is essential for a local church to have clear leadership. And, and, and that's why, just so you know, we're working through First Timothy because First Timothy is all about how the church should work, who should be elders, what kind of people they should be. And so I thought it would be most helpful for us to study through it before we come to affirm elders. So elders are the ones that should make these kinds of calls, and that is our plan to have them in place relatively soon. Last question, uh, and I'm not really sure, it's not really a question, more of a statement, that I think if uh, maybe you've been involved in church discipline or you've seen it happen or maybe you're new to the church, you're just looking at the whole thing and saying, you might say this, you know, this seems kind of messy. It seems like this whole thing is, man, it's, it seems like people could be hurt. There could be tempers could flare. And I'm not sure that it looks like it could actually work, right? Well, how do you know this is going to work? How do you know this is the best thing? Well, in terms of the messiness, uh, that's a fair comment. But the thing about discipline is that discipline is always messy. Just talk to any parent who has tried to bring effective discipline to an immature sinner in their home, and they will tell you it's messy. There are tantrums. There's tears. There are slammed doors. As they get older, there's the silent treatment. There's sharp words. It's, it's messy. The reaction is not always good. It's heartbreaking at times for a parent to bring discipline. But it's very loving at the same time. And it's very hopeful at the same time. Not just because the mechanism itself, like church discipline itself, is going to, you know, bring that restoration, but because the ultimate hope that it points to is the same hope that we all have in our sin. See, some people look at these texts about church discipline, they only see the hardness of it, and they miss the hope. Some people read this text, and they, they say that what it's teaching is, look, if you go too far, you can lose your salvation. You can make a shipwreck. There's no hope for you. It's not what this is teaching. It's not what this is about. This is about faith and love and hope. Yes, Hymenaeus and Alexander, they shipwrecked their faith. But let's not forget, it is very possible to survive a shipwreck. In fact, the Apostle Paul is maybe an expert on surviving shipwrecks. He says to the Corinthian church that he was shipwrecked three times. Look at what he says in 2 Corinthians. He says, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea. What Paul is saying, this whole thing is about the hope that he has for these men. It is, yes, an extreme measure, but it is still one filled with hope because ultimately, his hope for them is that the Spirit of God can soften the, hard, the hardest heart. In fact, he just told his whole story in the verses previous about how far he was away from God and yet how Jesus appeared to him and brought him to himself. And so what we need to hear, we should hear in this, is that if, if we are floating in the wreckage of our faith, or if someone we know is floating in the wreckage of their faith, and it's been years since they gathered with the church, they've had no interest in hearing anyone talk about their sin or their need for repentance. Even then, the road back is a very short one. They repent, they believe, they come to hold the faith all by the grace of God. We all are only able to do any of those things by the grace of God. That is the hope that we all have and that is the hope that Paul has for the church and even for those who have been divisive and difficult within it. So our key idea this morning 
The church should expect to fight necessary battles for truth in love. This is a word that is for the good of the church and for the good of those that might stray into untruth or into heresy. And what we need to see is that there is both a gentleness in the gospel and a firmness that we need to hold to the truth, but it is about a genuine love for all of us by God's grace. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you that, that you make very clear to us some of the ways in which we are to conduct ourselves as the church. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've shown your grace again and again and your call to the church and church leadership throughout the generations has been to hold fast to the truth and to love people well. And, and I just pray for us as a church. I pray that you would help us to do both of those things. Help us, Lord, in our own lives to identify areas of falsehood and sin and to repent. Help us to know your word. And I pray for us as a church that you would raise up amongst us um, faithful, godly leaders, ones who can lead us into the battles that need to be fought and to help us to avoid those that do not. Lord, I pray that you would continue to preserve us so that, so that our testimony and our mission in the communities, Lord, be one that would be effective and loving and gracious. I praise you, Lord, for this word. I, I pray, Lord, that we would each see how it applies to our own lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.